By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We're going through the the great men and women of faith listed for us in Hebrews chapter 11 in this series. And today we come to Enoch. And it's it's surprising to me that Enoch is included in this list of great men and women because we know so little about him. He, he, He truly is a kind of mysterious character. Now, why would the author of Hebrews single him out at the expense of some other people that could have been singled out and choose him to talk about in this chapter? Basically, what we know about him in Hebrews 11 is that he pleased God and God took him so he didn't experience death. Now, now it's been pointed out that as the author of Hebrews is going through this kind of Hall of Fame of people of faith, that the first part of it at least is done sequentially. But some have suggested it's not just a chronological listing, especially when you look at the first three people, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. It seems like they all represent different applications of faith. Andrew Murray describes them this way. He says, Abel, the sacrifice of faith. In Enoch, you have the walk of faith. And in Noah, you have the work of faith. Richard Phillips explains it this way. First, we're brought into a right relationship with God by trusting the sacrifices he's provided. Secondly, having been brought into this relationship, we then walk with him by faith. And third, only then do we perform the works of faith, the practical good deeds that follow as a result of God's grace. So Abel offered, Enoch walked, and Noah built. Last week, we looked at Abel, who was accepted by God on the basis of his sacrifice, and today we're going to look at the life of Enoch. Father, as we look at Enoch's life today, I pray that you would use it to speak to our hearts about what you want from us. And Lord, I pray that we, like Enoch, would be those who who press close to you, walk with you in daily communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, first thing we we see about Enoch is that he pleased God. Verse 5 again says, By faith Enoch was taken away from this life so he wouldn't experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. And then there's a a cause statement here for, why did God do this for? Because before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Enoch, according to these verses, lived a life that pleased God. You know, as I said, the Bible says really very little about Enoch. Most of what we know about him comes from a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. If you want to flip over there, you can if you have your Bibles. But in Genesis chapter 5, we're told that, verse 21, that when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. 
Apparently, at the time of the birth of this son, something happened to Enoch. Something kind of woke him up spiritually. And we think that because of what is said in verse 22. It says this, And after he became the father of Methuselah, after he'd had this son, we're told that Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether he lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. Now twice in that passage in the genealogy we have, we're told that Enoch walked with God in verse 22 and verse 24. Genealogies are, are kind of interesting. I mean, when you, when you read a genealogy, uh, it's really hard to stay awake. awake. They, they, basically, all they say is so-and-so lived, and then they died, and then they're followed by so-and-so who lived, and then he died, and it just goes on like that, over and over and over again. About as inspiring as reading the phone book. But in in Genesis chapter 5, this repetition continues unbroken until it comes to Enoch, and then it dramatically changes. Uh, Of all the men and women in this genealogy, it says something like they lived, but of Enoch it says he walked with God. There's a difference between just living and walking with God. And then of all the others that said that he died, or... And then of Enoch, it says, he didn't die because God took him away. So, so he's a very unusual insertion into this genealogy. It appears he was taken to God because of his relationship with him. And the phrase, walked with God, is not a real common phrase. It's, it's used of a few people. It's used of Enoch and Noah, but most people it doesn't use that word to refer those words to refer to them. It, it, it kind of implies a, a confidential communication between God and these people. It pictures a relationship that's so personal it could be described as walking side by side, as though God were an earthly companion. It's pointed out that walking with God is different than saying walking before God. Genesis 17 talks about that. Genesis 24 talks about walking before God. Or it's different than walking after God. Deuteronomy 13 talks about that. And those phrases are used to kind of describe a moral life, a a blameless life, living the way God wants you to live. But walking with God is something different. It's something special, something unique. It's interesting that in... Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. The author changes the word uh, that's used in Genesis 5 when he's talking about Enoch. In Genesis 5, it talks about walking with God. And and in Hebrews, he changes it to pleasing God. And, and, you know, what's the significance of that? Well, well, it's kind of interesting that the change that the Hebrews brought here, that Hebrews brought in here, is the way the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, it was 70 Greek scholars got together and translated the the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and that's what a lot of the the people used in Jesus' time, the Septuagint. But the 
writers of the Septuagint changed it in, Hebrew, in Genesis from walking to God to being pleased with God. They interpreted it differently. Uh, Dr. Richard Phillips explains it this way. He says, the translators of the Septuagint were, were reluctant, it appears, to use anthropomorphisms to describe God. Now, anthropomorphisms are just simply talking about God in human terms. For example, if the Bible speaks about God having arms or God having hands or eyes, those are anthropomorphisms. Literally, God doesn't have a body. But his, function, but his functions and activities are described in this way so that they become very personal to us and we can benefit from them. It's basically talking about the benefits that come from knowing God. And so for the Jews, these two phrases could be used kind of interchangeably. Walk with God to them was the same as being, God being pleased with them and pleasing God. You know, I, it, to me it seems like the Jewish translators had such a high view of God that, that they kind of struggled with some of these more intimate descriptions of God. They understood the transcendence of God, but they had sometimes trouble with intimacy with God. But it's interesting to me that the, the words God chose to use in Genesis, if you take them most literally, are the more human picture of walking together side by side with someone. Describing a very personal relationship. So, so what, did, what did Enoch do that was so special? He walked with God. You know, that statement's really, really simple. <laughs> and yet, it says so much. How would you like to get to the end of your life and be... And what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to walk with God? Well, walking together means a couple of things, I believe. I, it means more than these, but these are two that came to, to the forefront for me right away when I was working on this. First of all, it implies an intimacy with God. We've talked about that a little already, but think about that with me. Walking together is being personally conscious of another person's presence as we go through the day. Timothy Keller takes us back to the garden with Adam and Eve right after they had disobeyed God and we're told in Genesis 3.8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And Keller says this, that here's the garden in Eden. And Adam and Eve have just sinned. And they hear the sound of God walking in the garden. And they're afraid and they hide from the Lord among the trees. And Keller says, do you know what we can learn from that verse? He says, something amazing. <laughs> he says, we learned that in the very beginning of time in the original world, God took walks with us in the evening. Literally, Hebrews says that he walked in the garden in the breeze of the day, which is that part of the country in that part of the country would be in the evening. And we're told we used to take a walk with God every evening. 
Keller goes on and says, now get this. This is the God who created the whole universe. He created the world. He created the, 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 the stars and the sky and the, the galaxies. The God of all this, the God to whom the world is like just a speck of dust, this is the God who created everything that exists and he holds it together with the word of his power. And he says to man, let's take a walk together. Let's go for a walk. I want to hear what's on your heart. I want to share with you what's on mine. And that's the way it was in the garden. But notice at the moment the human beings disobeyed God, they couldn't stand intimacy with God anymore. You know how that works in your own lives. When you've wronged someone and you see them coming, the last thing you want to do is talk to them. So you go the other way or you turn or you, you get off the street or you go to a different aisle in the store or whatever. <laughs> well, what Keller goes on and says, when you read the book of Genesis, you see that starting in Genesis 3, we're estranged from God. We're alienated from him. We no longer walk with God. But suddenly you come to Genesis chapter 5 and there comes this mysterious man along by the name of Enoch. And it says of him that he walked with God and was not for God took him. So here after the fall, you see uh, just a short time later, a few generations later, you see this man Enoch who is walking with God like they did in the garden. And you say, what? Can someone still walk with God in spite of what happened? Is it possible? Is it possible that that estrangement has been so utterly healed that God could actually take a man and receive him back to himself once again and have a relationship with him? Enoch walked with God like Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. How's that possible? And that's the question. And, And you know what the answer is? What's this chapter about in Hebrews? The answer is by faith. By faith, we relate to God. By faith, faith, we have an ongoing relationship with God. By faith, we receive from God the things He has for us. By faith, we trust Him to forgive our sins. By faith, we believe that he's real and his kingdom is significant enough that we're willing to turn from earthly treasures and live our lives for him instead of for earthly purposes. By faith, we walk with God. Christianity is not just about having a general belief in God. It's not just about being generally a moral person. It's about walking in a relationship with God. And through faith, intimacy with God is restored and communion with God is restored One of the most overwhelming truths in all of God's word to me is that God wants a relationship with me. I I can't understand that. I can't get my head around that. That is such an incredible truth. The great German, I've told you this so many times I shouldn't tell it again, but the great German theologian Karl Barth, when who wrote volumes on theology. When someone asked him, what's the most important truth to you in all the Bible? He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. (laughs) I mean, why would the God who created all this care about me? Why would he care about you? 
And, and sin alienated us from God. I can understand that. It cut us off from his presence. But the whole purpose of our salvation is that we would be reconciled to God, that we would be brought back into a relationship with God so we can once again walk with God. When we commit our lives to Christ, He cleanses us of our sins and we're no longer separated from Him. There's no longer this barrier separating us from Him. Instead, He brings us into His family. He makes us His children. We now call Him Father. (laughs) And the Bible says that since we are His children, we are heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. He has a future for us. Because we have this relationship with Him, we're we're His children, we have an inheritance waiting us. We'll share the inheritance that Christ has. (laughs) How do we walk with God? How, How do we get closer to Him? I think you do it just the same way you do it with your family. The most important thing is spending time together. It means that we listen to him as he speaks to us through his word. We're constantly going back to his word. It means we pray continually without ceasing throughout the day. The term walks refers to a step-by-step fellowship, a daily communion. It means being conscious that Christ is with you every moment of every day. It means we must fully trust God and confide in him as we would a close friend. It means that a person Uh, lives a spiritual life in which he or she tells God everything. It means putting each decision, each temptation, each desire before him and asking for his direction and power on a moment-by-moment basis. It means that when you're busy, you still commune with him in the midst of your busyness. It means that when you're experiencing the worst that this world has to dish out, you can still enjoy wonderful fellowship with God. That's what what Tim Herman was expressing when he was sharing that he sets a table for us in the midst of our enemies. (laughs) Even when we experience the worst this world has, we can still enjoy fellowship with God. Richard Phillips in his commentary on Romans, on Hebrews, I should say, shares the the true story of a Chinese pastor who was imprisoned in a labor concentration camp for his faith. His captors, to punish him, put him in charge of cleaning and emptying the camp latrine. And every day he would take the foul excrement out and distribute it in the field as a fertilizer. And the smell was so bad that the guards drew away from him and gave him plenty of spaces. He did it. But because of that, this pastor had wonderful times of solitude with God. He could talk to God. He could sing out loud, both of the things which were forbidden in the the camp. And because of this, he joyfully named the dung heap in which he worked his garden. And he's saying, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. (laughs) First service, I said, I don't want to ask what the do is, but. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. 
Do you have a God who walks with you and talks with you? <laughs> this is what the Christian life is intended to be, a walk of faith, abiding fellowship with our loving God. He adds, uh, Richard Philip goes on and adds this, he says, God's presence transforms even the worst of circumstances into a bed of roses simply because he's there with us. What glory that is, that when God calls us to faith, he invites us to walk by his side. That means that every day, ordinary days, difficult days, joyful days, are days with God, a foretaste of heaven, to be with him, to know him, to love him, to see him, to feel the light and warmth of his pleasure. And what Richard Phillips is saying here is he's saying, it doesn't matter how bad it gets in your life, he's better than it is bad. That's my paraphrase of what he just said. doesn't matter how bad your circumstances get, how painful or discouraging the experiences in your life are. God's presence is better than it is bad. To use the analogy of the pastor, and I'm, I told the first service I shouldn't do this, but, but no matter what crap you have to deal with in life... <laughs> I'm a pastor. I didn't say that. I, I, I won't say that again. But uh, he's better. It makes those difficult circumstances places where you commune with God. You know, one of my favorite verses, and I return to it over and over and over again, is in Matthew 28, 20, just before Jesus went away to be with the Father. And he says, surely to his disciples, surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is always there. I go back to that verse every few weeks and remind myself of that promise. I love that verse. It reminds me of Jesus' constant presence. But the fact that Jesus is with us, and he is, doesn't mean that we're aware of that. doesn't mean we live out of that reality. Walking with God still has to be intentional on our part. We have to... to contemplate what that means. We must choose to live in awareness of his presence if we're going to enjoy fellowship with him. Just as human friendships go cold if, if you don't spend time together, so a relationship with God grows cold if it's neglected. Again, to walk is to go step by step in daily communion with constant interaction. It's about practicing the presence of God. There's an intimacy, a fellowship, a joy that's described as two people being together. Walking with God is about intimacy with God. But secondly, walking in God also applies agreement with God. Amos says this, he says, do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so. And that means that two people can't really walk together in fellowship if they aren't going to the same place. There has to be agreement about what they're doing. There has to be this, 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 this common view of things. To walk with God, you have to be on the same page with God. It means you have to be in agreement with, in heart and mind. It means you want to grow to know Him more and understand His will more so you can live in conformity with that will. To say Enoch walked with God indicates that he had fellowship with God because he shared God's view of things. He shared God's values. He agreed with God about the world around him. He agreed with God about what's important. You know, sometimes we think it was easier for people to live for God back then than it is today in our secular culture. 
But we forget that Enoch lived in a very evil day. Enoch, we're told, walked with God during one of the most difficult times in, in world history. He walked with him before the great flood of God's judgment came and wiped out a generation of people. It was a time of unparalleled ungodliness. Evil was increasing. Jesus said to his disciples, the time before the flood was like the world is going to be at the time before his return. He says this in Matthew 24. He says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like the day of Noah. (laughs) In those days before the flood, people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered the boat. People didn't realize that what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them away. And that's how it's going to be before the Son of Man comes back. So he's using this time in in history to to tell us how difficult times can get. And you and I are living in a time that in some ways is similar to the time in which Enoch lived. Sin's increasing. More and more people are rejecting the notion of God. Men are living in defiance against the values of God. You hear it every night on the news. But when most of the world was running away from God, Enoch was running to him. Enoch walked with God when it wasn't easy to do so. He walked with God in a culture that had completely rejected God. In fact, we're told that Enoch did more than just walking with God. He warned his generation about their sin against God, but no one took it seriously. In the book of Jude, we're told that speaking to the godless people of his day, that Enoch Verses 14 and 15 of the book of Jude says this, Enoch, the seventh descendant from Adam, said to these people, these evil people around him, look, the Lord is coming with many thousands of his holy angels to judge every person on earth. He's coming to punish all who are against God for the evil they have done against him. And he will punish sinners who are against God for all their evil that they have sinned against him. Enoch did not accommodate to his culture. He didn't join the crowd. He chose instead to be different. He chose instead to go against the crowd. He chose to be a mouthpiece of God, warning people that God's judgment was coming. He took a stand for righteousness in an unrighteous culture. And this means that he could not have been a very popular preacher. But this is the important thing. He was popular with God. Enoch, we are told, pleased God. In verse 6, the author of Hebrews goes on. In Hebrews 11, verse 6. And in light of what he's just said about Enoch, he talks about the two elements of faith that please God. First, well, he says this in verse 6. Let me read the verse, and then we'll go back and look at the two elements. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Earnestly is a significant part of that, but that's not the part I'm going to focus on. Once again, if you look at this verse, you see that it has both the present and future orientations of faith that we talked about in verse 1. Notice the two parts of verse 6 correspond with the two parts of verse 1. Verse 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's looking forward into the future. You're hoping for something. And the conviction of things not seen, this is something that's happening now, but you don't see it. That's in the present. 
And the conviction of things not seen corresponds to the belief that God exists. Now, we don't see God, but He exists. He's there. We believe that He's there. And the assurance of things hoped for corresponds to the belief that He's a rewarder to those who seek Him. That means that that if we believe in Him and trust in Him and believe that He's going to fulfill His promises, that, that He's going to be a rewarder to us, then we're exercising that future-oriented part of faith. So faith that pleases God has two components. One is the conviction that there is a great unseen God who exists, and the other is the assurance that this God is a God of love and abundance and grace who seeks to, to pour out His love on us and promises us a future with Him. In verse 6, then we're told that no one can please God without living in reliance on His present power and in confidence of his future promises, both sides. So first we see that faith believes that God exists. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. The author says that we must believe that God exists. He means that we have to believe not only that a God exists, but the God that's being described here for us is the God who exists. The God that's been described all through the book of Hebrews up to this point is the God exists. In this context, it's not just the notion of some vague God out there, a belief that there is a higher power. You have to believe that God, the God who reveals himself in Scripture, is real. Faith accepts God's revelation of himself. And what is this God like? Who is he? Hebrews tells us in the very first verse that long ago God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets, and now in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son. His Son is a revelation of Him. It goes on and talks about His Son being an exact representation of God. In Colossians, Paul says the same thing. He says, Christ is the invisible image, is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything else was created and is supreme over all of creation. So Jesus is God's final word. He's the ultimate revelation of God to us. He's God dressed in human flesh. And when we look at Jesus, who do we see? If you go on in the passage in Colossians, he starts to describe Jesus in a number of different ways. First of all, he's the creator in Colossians 1.16. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can't see can see out of the things that we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. He created all this, seen and unseen. Colossians goes on and says he's the sustainer. He existed before anything else. And he holds all things together. He sustains creation. He goes on and says that he's the goal of creation. Everything was created through him and for him. And that idea of for him has a sense of toward him. It's moving toward him. All things have been created by him and toward him. Creation has its final goal in moving toward Christ. And he goes on and talks about he's the lover and savior of our souls. How, how, how God... In, was pleased in Christ to reconcile everything to himself through his blood on the cross and Christ was willing to die for us and now we're reconciled to Christ through his death. That shows how much Christ loved us. The cross was the measure of his love. So if you believe that Christ is the creator, the sustainer, the goal and the lover of your soul, then you're starting to believe in the God who is, the God who exists. This is, this is the God we worship. 
But not only do we believe that the God of the Bible exists, but we also, secondly, biblical faith believes that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Anyone who comes to him must believe, first, that he exists, but secondly, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That is, by faith, we trust him to keep his promises. God has promised to reward those who seek him by believing in him and coming to him in faith. These are rewards that aren't earned, but in his sovereign goodness, God grants rewards, not in terms of payments, but as blessings to his people. God grants us the gift of eternal life. He promises to answer our prayers. And I could just go on all morning listing benefits that come from from knowing Christ. But by faith we know that because of God, the nature of God, his all, that he's all-powerful and all-knowing, and because of his character, that he's faithful and true, therefore he's trustworthy, we can depend on him completely. He's a rewarder. And finally we see that Enoch is taken by God. That's probably the most interesting point about Enoch It says, verse 5, it says, By faith he was taken from this life so that he would not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. One day this godly man was there. The next day he's not. He couldn't be found. People looked for him. They didn't see him anymore. They didn't know what happened to him. But we do. We're told that Enoch, like Elijah, was taken out of this life into the next without having to die. There's a lot of speculation about this. I'm willing to leave it in a category called mystery. Because the scriptures don't say much about it. They don't fill us in. They just mention it in the middle of a genealogy. (laughs) Sometimes you can speculate too much on this kind of stuff and, and it takes you off track. But the point that sticks with me is that He was taken to be with the Father. It's a picture already this early in time of life after death and God's ability to reward His people with everlasting life. Actually, the the committed Christian believes that because of eternal life, because that's awaiting us, because these promises that God has for us are still out there, They believe that the reward God gives is greater than the reward that comes from living for this world. And that's why they're willing to sell out so completely to him. And ultimately, our reward is going to be the same reward that Enoch received, namely everlasting life with God, God's gift of himself to all who put their faith in him. In conclusion then, The word walk is a beautiful word. I'm just kind of moved by it when I think about it. Here's a man whose whole life is described as the fact that he has walked with God. It's an expression of fellowship with God that results in his favor. It refers to a manner of life that brings a person into a position of nearness with God. And the kind of walk that Enoch exhibits is the same kind of walk that should characterize your life and mine. Enoch walked with God not just periodically. He walked with God throughout his life. To me, that says that that he was very consistent and daily walking in an ongoing conversation with God. 
in the midst of a culture characterized by its anti-God stance. That's quite an achievement. And that's what God wants of us today. He wants us to walk daily with Him. That means that we should walk in humility and obedience to Him. This is the kind of life that pleases God. And it's possible today, even more so than it was in Enoch's time, because today Christ is in you. Jesus told His disciples before He left them, the Comforter will come and He will be with you and be in you. And the Comforter is the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ. It's God Himself. And so the challenge for us in this sermon is to live our life out of our union with Christ, to live our life daily by walking with God through Christ. Like Enoch, we need to walk with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these individuals of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, thank you for putting Enoch there. Help us to keep that phrase before us all week this week, every day as we get up and go to work or or, or serve our families or whatever we do each day. Help us to be conscious in the morning when we wake up that this is another opportunity for us to walk with you. I pray that we would be known as people who practice the presence of God daily in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.